Spirit. In the next few minutes, may the meditations of our hearts and minds and the words of my mouth be wholly dedicated and serviced to you because you are our rock and you are our redeemer. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So last week we celebrated um, the greatest event in all of human history. And, and even though um, Christmas seems to be a much bigger deal, I mean weeks and weeks and weeks of celebration and special programs and all sorts of things that we do as a church, um, and certainly in our culture, Christmas is a much bigger deal. Easter is the essence of what it means to be a Christian. We acknowledged last week the greatest sacrifice that God could make for those of us who are human beings through the death of Jesus Christ on our behalf on the cross was satisfied God for the forgiveness of our sins. And then on Sunday celebrated the greatest hope that we have human beings have through the power of the resurrection. Unless you think that's just my idea, listen to what the Apostle Paul has to say about those two events. What I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. These are the things of first importance there's lots of other very important things in the Bible, lots of other great theology and doctrines, but this is of first importance. This is what goes at the top of the list, and everything else comes underneath and behind that. So once you have that, now what do you do? What do we think about today? What is our focus today? Or even better yet, you know, how should we live based on this? I mean, this is a great theological concept that is the foundation of who we are, but what practical significance does a resurrection have in our life? What difference does it make when you and I leave here today and go to our neighborhoods or the grocery store or sit at home with our families or go to work tomorrow? Does it have any pragmatic significance? So part of the answer to that question is, again, to turn to Scripture, and the best place we thought, Pastor Greg and I, as we made our plans for the year, the best place to turn following Easter would be the book of James, which is a book of nothing but practical advice. Verse after verse, line after line, word after word of significance that is applicable to our life every single day. And so we're going to spend the next several weeks um, going through the book of James together, verse by verse, line by line, word by word. Although that's not exactly true because we don't have enough time to do all of that, so we're going to skip around a little bit. But for the most part, we're going to cover the entire book of James and see what he has to say to us about how we live our lives. And so the book of James begins this way. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations. And so, um, first of all, this letter in the, in the New Testament is written by James, who is the younger brother of Jesus. I mean, if you just stop there for a minute, can you imagine being the younger brother of Jesus? What would have that been like to grow up like? I mean, you know, all of our moms said to us as younger siblings, if you could only be more like your brother, well, when Mary said that to James, that set a pretty high standard, right? If you could only be more like your brother, it was perfect. So James, the brother of Jesus, writes this letter. 
And we're told that he wrote it to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. Well, what 12 tribes are those? Are those the, the 12 tribes of, of Israel? Are, are that, is that what he's really talking about? What, what 12 tribes are these? And they're scattered among the nations. Well, whereas the Apostle Paul, who was an evangelist and was a church planter and went from town to town planting churches, Ephesus, Galatia, Thessalonica, um, Corinth, all these different places, who wrote letters back to these churches um, to answer some questions they had about how to live their lives out as Christians or specific problems that they had in those churches. He tried to give answers to those things in the letters he wrote to them. James is writing to a broader audience. When he says the 12 tribes, he's talking about the 12 apostles scattered, right? In the book of Acts, we're told that the 12 apostles scattered and spread the gospel in a variety of places in the Middle East and in Europe. And, and these Christians are scattered all over the place. So he was not writing to a specific church in a specific place. He was writing to all Christians and through the power of the Holy Spirit, all Christians at all times. And that might seem like a stretch for some people. Like, how can he be writing in, you know, early in the first century to us in 2016? Well, there's two great answers to that. One is through the power of the Holy Spirit. And two is, you know, human beings, we don't change that much. We might like to think we're cooler than they were in the first century, but we're just not. Human beings are human beings are human beings, and our problems continue, and the questions that we have continue throughout. So James is writing this letter to all Christian believers at all times about very specific things that we're all going to deal with. So he begins in, in uh, verse 2 this way. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. And let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If any of you lacks wisdom... You should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave in the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all that they do. So James, being a very pragmatic kind of guy, begins addressing a subject that we all wrestle with all the time, and it has to do with the idea of suffering and putting a different framework. But the first thing he encourages us to do is something that we don't always consider as Christians. He says, what I want you to do for a while here is to be completely self-centered. I want you to think only about yourself. I don't want you to think about other people. I don't want you to think about your small group. I don't want you to think about your community. I don't want you to think about your church. The first thing, the place to start is for all of us to think about ourselves. And what I want you to do is to make a self-assessment, to look in the mirror and to ask yourself the question, how close am I to being exactly a replica of Jesus Christ? So maybe what you would do is to take one of those scales, you know, rate yourself from 1 to 10, 1 being, I'm not like Jesus at all, and you never mistake me for being a Christian, to 10, people often call me Jesus. <laughs> and mark yourself on that continuum somewhere, you know. And sometimes I'm sure you're mistaken for Jesus when you're at home, but not necessarily when you're at work or school. Or maybe it's just the opposite, I don't really know. But what he's asking us to do is to make a self-assessment, to look in the mirror and to evaluate ourselves. In general, the book of James' uh, topic would be the whole idea of Christian maturity becoming more and more like Jesus. And that Christian maturity begins, first of all, with us individually. How much am I like Jesus, and am I growing in that? 
Because the community of believers was made up of a whole bunch of individuals, and the more each of us is like Jesus, the greater chance that this community can be God's source of shining light and living water in the world in which we live. And so this is the context. He, wa he wants us to be mature. And the real question he begins right away with is this difficult topic. How do we respond to suffering when it takes place in our life? How do we respond to difficulties and trials and suffering? Do you rejoice when things are difficult? Probably not. I mean, if, if you went out today um, after church and you went to your car and found out that all four of your tires were flat, would you go, this is perfect. I love this. This is going to give me so much time to be more like Jesus. This, this is the best thing that's happened to me in a long time. How many of you would do that? I'm glad no one raised your hand because you'd be lying in church if that was the case. Now, that isn't really what he's asking us to do, but he is asking us to reframe the way we think about suffering and difficulty. Like I said as the service began, we're thinking about this idea of how is the Christian community unique? Well, one of the ways we're unique is the way that we view suffering and difficulty and trials that come into our life. Are we just like everybody else or do we have a, a unique framework? And so um, in these few verses, James lays out a goal and a pathway to achieve that goal and um, also reminds us that there's some assistance to achieve that goal. So the goal is found in verse 4. It says, let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, lacking for nothing. That's the goal, that we can be mature and complete, lack, not lacking for anything. And a, little, a literal translation of this word mature is the word perfect. And Jesus holds out this standard for us um, in the Sermon on the Mount, right? He says, be perfect even as your Father in heaven is perfect. And that's something that always kind of bothers all of us. I mean, I don't have a chance to be as perfect as God is. What kind of a goal is that? That's an unrealistic goal. And if you're going to have an achievable goal, it needs to be somewhat realistic. But I don't think that God ever lays out goals for us if they're not achievable. So it's only our own problem thinking it's not achievable. Perfect, really, however, doesn't mean perfection as we talk about it. It means maturity. Being more like Jesus every day, however that uh, we can get there. Now, maturity sounds like a much more attainable goal than perfection, but at the same time, a maturity that allows us to be joyful in the face of suffering sounds very unrealistic, and many people in our culture would say it's an unhealthy goal. We shouldn't rejoice in suffering. You should embrace your difficulty, embrace your trials, live through the grief, live through the difficulty, live through the pain. It's unhealthy to rejoice when it's happening. It doesn't make any sense. And I think that James' advice allows us to do both. So if the idea is to become more and more like Christ, and those of us in Reform circles say we're in the sanctification process, right? We start out in a relationship with Jesus at a certain point, and as we continue to grow, we're being sanctified. We're being made more and more like Jesus. It's this maturing process that we're engaged in. As we engage in that process, where do we fit on this scale? And the Apostle Paul encourages us to be involved in this as well, right? He says we should be engaged in being more like Jesus. So no matter how old we are or how long we've been a, a, a Christian, there's always something more for us to do and attain in, in terms of what it means to be a mature Christian. And the Apostle Paul, when he writes about this in Philippians, he says, he, you know, he's encouraging the people in Philippi to become mature in their faith. And then he says this, not that I have already obtained all this, or have already arrived at my goal, 
But I press on to take hold of that for which Christ took hold of me. Christ took hold of us to help us become more like him. If the Apostle Paul wasn't there yet, I'm probably not a 10 yet. I'm about a 9.7, but I'm not a 10, okay? Who knows what we are? We all have our own self-assessment, and every day it probably would change. But the important thing is to look in the mirror and go, where am I on this scale? I think it's safe to say we'd all like to be mature, we'd all like to be perfect, we'd all like to be more like Christ. But at the same time, to be honest, we're not really sure it's possible. If the measure of maturity is simply this one test to consider it joyful when I'm suffering, then it's probably an unrealistic goal. Well, what exactly does James mean? So, you know, James is a very practical letter. He's not going to suggest a goal to us without giving us a pathway. It is achievable. That's the great thing about the Bible. There's lots of goals in the Bible, but every goal that the Bible lays out for us is achievable. So, that, so this whole um, reframing of suffering into the idea that we can rejoice when we're suffering is achievable in some way, shape, or form. There's a pathway to that. James is encouraging us to think differently, to have a new mental model. And part of that new mental model is just to acknowledge and realize and claim the fact that suffering is a part of life. It happens. You cannot live life and not suffer. God tells us that himself. Jesus says, in this world you will have trouble. You're going to have suffering that's going to go on. I don't know why we think it's not going to happen, but we act like we're completely surprised when it comes out of nowhere. Hey, I believe in Jesus. I'm a Christian. I shouldn't have to suffer. I don't think it's really possible to go through Good Friday and believe that we shouldn't suffer. I mean, the only perfect person who ever lived suffered horribly. Suffering is a part of life. The question of Christian maturity is not whether we suffer or not. We're going to suffer. The question is, how do we see our suffering? James says it's a testing of our faith. And it's important to make a distinction. It's not like, you know what? I am going to make Stacy Hendricks suffer more this week because I'm going to see how good of a Christian she really is because she really needs more suffering. I mean, I know she lives with Dave. That's enough probably, but come on. <laughs> That's not the framework of what it means. God doesn't inflict us with suffering to test us. But we're going to suffer in life. And when we suffer, it's a test of our faith. You understand the difference? God doesn't give us suffering. He just says that suffering is a part of the way we live. And when you suffer, it's going to test your faith. Are we going to be steadfast? Are we going to persevere? Are we going to learn something? How are we going to frame our suffering? Because that will determine the kind of witness that we are in life. When James writes about suffering... He isn't just writing about the horrible tragedies that we imagine. Not just someone diagnosed with a, a terminal illness or a tragic car accident that kills somebody unexpectedly. Although he is talking about those things, those that are included in the sufferings. But he uses this great phrase when he talks uh, that's translated like many sufferings. It's got a beautiful meaning to it. It's like the many colored or the variegated, or diversified, or complex, or intricate. It, it can mean all of those things. It's all the kinds of sufferings that we might have. So it is those tragic, horrible, terrible things that happen, but it's also the things that happen to us every day that make us suffer. Car trouble can cause us to suffer. Amen? That's the only amen I got at 9 o'clock when I said car trouble makes us suffer. Oh, Amen! You know, everybody, every family in the world has to have two cars so they can keep one running. 
That's just the way it is. But when you have car trouble, if you're caught in those vehicles, and you wake up in the morning and one doesn't go, how do you respond? Oh, why this? This is terrible. It's horrible. What are we going to do? How are we going to get it fixed? How am I going to get to work? How am I going to get the kids to school? What am I going to do? You might not say it as fast as I do, but that's what you're thinking. <laughs> or you have issues with your children. Or the worst thing that can happen in our society today is if you work somewhere, or even if you work from your home, whatever the case might be, and there's no electricity and your computers go out. If you don't have computers, how many of you can do what you do during the day? Nobody has their hand raised. It's, we live on computers. This, okay, so last night I got an email at 11 o'clock about church business, and I got an email this morning at 7.15 about church business. If I wouldn't have looked at my email, I wouldn't have known that church business, and it would have been okay. But without email, can you imagine all day long without a computer? I mean, that we, you know, we, we went out without, uh, periodically the electricity goes out in Elmhurst. I don't know if you knew that or not. But when it goes out for a whole day, and there's no lights in the building, and there's no, you know, there's no computers, even the church might as well shut down. The good news is God doesn't use email. He answers prayer. But this is, this, it's like, what if it went down two or three days? So if you live in the city of Chicago and you've got kids in Chicago public schools, were you rejoicing that the teacher struck on Friday? What do you do with your kids? How do you get to work? Oh, they have places for them to go, but you had to figure out how to get them there, what to do, all these other arrangements. It isn't whether the strike was good or bad. It's like it's just suffering for people. It's just suffering. It's difficult. All these variegated, many colors of suffering, diversified. It happens all the time. Suffering comes in many different shapes and sizes and colors. And the way we deal with these minor setbacks compared to the major tragedies, the way we deal with the suffering that we experience every single day is probably a greater shaper of our character and a better producer of our witness than how we deal with the major tragedies of life. Every single day we're going to deal with some kind of setback, some kind of suffering, some kind of test. And the question is, how do we deal with it? So when I was a, a pastor in, uh, in Traverse City, um, one of our staff members, their daughter, teenager, was involved in a car accident. Um, and, uh, you know, she got in this car accident, she got out of her car, and as soon as she stepped out of her car, the woman who was engaged in a car accident in the other car started yelling and screaming at her, telling her, oh, are you dumb? Don't you know how to drive? What were you doing? Da, 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 da. And the girl didn't know what to do. You just got to go freak out. Ah! That's how they do it. Ah! <laughs> and then the police came, and the police talked to both of them, you know, discerned what exactly had taken place, and the police was going to give the older woman the ticket. And then she started another policeman. Screaming and yelling and telling him he didn't know what he was doing. It was all her fault and so on and so forth. The policeman was kind of unfazed by it. I always find that's a great tactic to use a policeman is to yell and scream at him when they want to give you a ticket. Because I'm sure they'll change their mind. <laughs> it's like when you yell at the referee on television watching a basketball game. Anybody do that? It's like, how many referees have changed their mind through the television? So this girl comes in to see her dad after the accident. She's all shaken and she goes, you know, I got in this car accident. She said, I knew who it was. It's this woman. I, she didn't recognize you. She goes to our church. <laughs> How do we handle the little annoyances in life? What do our colleagues and our neighbors see? What kind of a witness are we when we are suffering some kind of setback in this many-colored 
version of suffering that God lays before us. The natural effect of suffering is to put our perseverance to the, to the test. You know, life is hard and faith is weak. That's the way we say it. James says, you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. And perseverance is, is synonymous with steadfastness. It, it doesn't imply that we are unfazed by suffering. But it means that we hang in there. We trust God. We lay our cares upon Him. We look for Him for strength to deal with it. That's perseverance. That's steadfastness. There may be no better biblical example of being steadfast than Joseph, right? You know the story of Joseph from the Old Testament? Joseph was a brat. And it was his dad's fault. He was spoiled. And his brothers didn't like him. And so they decided that we'll just kill him. Um, and then one of the brothers intervened. And instead of killing him, they sold him into slavery, which apparently is a better deal. And he got sold into slavery. And you, you know, you probably know the story about how he's, been, he, he's accused of a crime he didn't commit. He's thrown into prison. I mean, he has all, these, all of the stuff that Joseph suffers from, none of it was his fault. He was an innocent victim. Of all the suffering. I mean, hey, your brothers want to kill you. It's not your fault. Now you're sold into slavery. I didn't ask for that. Now Pharaoh's wife accuses me, or Potiphar's wife accuses me of rape. I didn't, I didn't ask for that. Now I'm in jail. All of the suffering that Joseph endured was none of his doing. He could say, I was a victim, I'm innocent. It should have never happened to me. All of that kinds of things that we come up with. And yet at the same time, it never altered Joseph's faith that God would somehow come through and deliver him. I'm sure he had questions about it. I'm sure he wondered about it. But he was steadfast and he persevered at every single turn. So think about your life. What have been the best teaching moments in your life? And when everything is going great and there are no difficulties, there are no problems, or have you learned more through struggle and difficulty and suffering? I mean, most people say that they learn a lot more through that than they do when everything is good. I mean, I can give you a trivial example because I got a million of them, but, you know, when I was coaching girls basketball, we could win games by 30 or 40 points sometimes. If you played the right teams and chose your opponents well, you could do that. But when we had really close games, one point or two point, when we would lose games, our girls would learn a lot more about who they are and how good they could play and what it meant to, to handle loss and success and all the pressure that goes in with it than winning by 30 or 40 points. You learn a lot more through those things than you do through great success. Last week I watched the movie The Big Short, which is uh, the story of uh, some guys knowing about the you know, being able to predict the collapse of the mortgage business long before it happened in 2007 and 2008. And, you know, uh, it's, it's a really a horrible depiction of the big bank system and how they work. And, yeah. But a lot of us were hurt by that, and that was their prediction. You know, it's not just about the bank succeeding or failing, about you making money or not making money. People are going to suffer. They're going to lose their jobs. They're going to lose their homes. They're not going to be able to feed their families. People are going to go destitute because you're making so much money and you're not telling anybody about what's going to happen. But my guess is a lot of us learn a lot of really hard and difficult and painful lessons through the collapse of 2008 and 2009. And what we learn most about is the sovereignty and the grace of God and how he can bring us through the other side. 
how he could lead us. Now, does that mean the next time that there is something like that that takes place that we're going to rejoice and suffer? Probably not, but we know that God will persevere and give us steadfastness and lead us to the other side. Our previous experiences give us perspective and strength to deal with the next test. Our computers didn't work yesterday, but we got through and we're still here, and here we are again today, and now we're going to make it. James is not recommending giddiness and celebration when someone is hospitalized or diagnosed with a horrible illness or someone dies, or when your relationships are tense, or when your business goes south. But he is saying that those of us who are believers have a whole different perspective because we know that we're going to learn something from this and come out on the other side holding God's hand. And because I know that I'm going to learn something to be a stronger person on the other side, I, I can rejoice after the fact, but not always in the midst. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking in anything, James says. The goal is maturity. The pathway to maturity, James says, is the suffering that we endure and what God teaches us in the midst of it. And that seems really difficult. I'm not sure that I could get to rejoicing in the midst of suffering if I was left on my own. That's a tough trip for me. But the good news is that God says, well, you don't have to do it on your own. The last several verses that I read began with these words, if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. In the midst of suffering, and we don't know what to do, and we try to push through it on our own, we'll probably fail. But when you ask God for wisdom, you're asking for God's perspective on whatever's happening in your life, not your own. Because when we're in the midst of suffering, let's just face it, we don't see things very clearly. Our own perspective is probably not very good. I need God's perspective. This word wisdom is, um, is a combination of knowledge about who God is and what God wants a knowledge of theology and doctrine and how we should be, that kind of knowledge combined with the ability to apply it every day in everyday situations. So, so just knowing something, intellectual uh, knowledge, is not enough in God's mind unless we can apply it every day, which is pretty much the point of this whole sermon series. The resurrection occurred, so what? Well, there's a big so what. It changes the way we live every single day if we look at it from God's wisdom and not our own. And if we ask for God's wisdom because we're confused about why this is going on or what's taking place, he will give it to us. Not we might, not maybe, not God will give it to us. That's what James guarantees. As you get older, you understand that suffering and difficulties and trials and tests they're just a part of life. It isn't because we're unlucky. It isn't because someone is out to get us. It's life. And once you pass through trials, we understand that they produce a depth of character, a maturity, a more Christ-like attitude once you're on the other side. They give us perspective. 
You know, that's what C.S. Lewis wrote in The Great Divorce. They say of some temporal suffering, no bliss can make up for it. In other words, what he was saying is that some people's perspective on life is, you know what? The suffering I'm going through, you, you can promise me that in eternity it'll be better and heaven will make it all better and it'll all change everything. You know, no promise of that. No promise of that is going to change what I'm going through right now. That's because they don't know that heaven, once attained, will work backwards and turn even that agony into glory. That's what we don't understand. Only a God who gives us the gift of a resurrection can give us a unique perspective on suffering. And only a God and his wisdom can produce that kind of maturity which changes us and through us the world. Let us pray. So we um, confess, Lord, that life is hard and that faith is weak. And that we have a difficult time gaining your perspective. And so each of us this morning, in this room, at this time, pray for your Holy Spirit to give us your wisdom, your perspective on life. We need you to do that, O Lord, for us, and so we open ourselves for it. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Um, just a couple of announcements before we uh, continue to worship with our tithes and offerings this morning. Um, Two of them have to do with mission uh, experiences in the life of our church. We have a very active mission program. Um, this Wednesday night, uh, we invite you to come to dinner here. Our youth department is hosting dinner. Um, our senior high group is going to Honduras on a mission trip this summer, uh, trying to raise funds for that trip. And uh, you just come, place a donation in the basket, have dinner. And they, uh, that way is a way for us all to participate in the trip. They get to go, but we get to support them. It's a great opportunity. Um, and then secondly, next Sunday morning, um, uh, after each of our services, uh, Max and Kina Ventil, who are missionaries that we support, uh, will be hosting uh, uh, a time up in the upper gathering room to explain uh, about an adult mission trip that is available November 1 through 7 uh, this fall to go to the Dominican Republic and do some building for people who live in poverty. If you are interested, like to know more about that, how it works, what exactly you'll be doing, uh, you can take advantage of that next Sunday morning after each of our services. And then on uh, a sad note, um, one of our members passed away late last evening, Kendra Alwick, a longtime member of our church, uh, passed away after a long battle with pancreatic cancer. Um, there are no arrangements uh, made yet because this happened late last evening. But continue to keep her family in your prayers as well as they go through this time of grief and sorrow. Um, as we think about that and God's goodness to us as well, let us worship now with our tithes and offerings. 